having a life of prayer. It talks about fasting. And then uh, uh, and, and these are teachings about how we should be, how we should live, and what kind of character and what kind of people are we to be. Not to act or not the things that we're supposed to do, but then what are we supposed to be as followers of Jesus. And then in chapter 7, he mentions judging others. And he says something that I feel is one of the most misquoted uh, Bible passage in all of the ba- Bible. If it's one of them. And it, it's this passage. It says, judge not that you be not judged. For we, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you will use it will be measured to you. People love to use this passage you know, and say, like, don't judge me. I say this to Mina all the time. I'm sure you guys have heard me say it. You guys are like make fun of me about something. I'll be like, "Don't judge me." You know, we we love to say this. You know, there's that Tupac song, "Only God Could Judge Me." You know what I mean? Like, "Only God Could Judge Me." Um, that's a lot. I listen to a lot of Tupac. I I have that song memorized in my head. I'm like, like when I was writing this, and I thought back, like, how did that song go? And I realized I knew the whole song. <laughs> um, and people love to misquote this passage of the Bible and use it to tell people to not judge them. Don't judge me. You know, Bible says you shouldn't judge me, you know, and, and the world uses this, uses this a lot. Well, this is true to a certain degree, but we can't take this passage out of context. You guys have to know that when you read the Bible, you have to read the Bible in its context, because when you do, when you read it out of context, you totally miss what Jesus was trying to communicate to us all along. So the world will take this passage out of context and try to make Christians not make any judgments. You guys should not make any judgments about me. Um, you know, the Bible, your Bible that you read says that you should not judge anything about the world, about society, and how we are to see the world, how we are to see people. This passage is not about not judging people, but it's about judging people rightly. Right? It's about judging people rightly. Uh, right after this parable, Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Right after this parable about not judging, Jesus tells us to make judgments. Like, don't give your pearls. Like, don't, you know, like, we have, he's telling us we need to judge who are the, the pigs and the dogs here. I know that sounds very, very mean, but Jesus makes these distinctions in the word of God. He says that he sends us out like sheep amongst wolves. And so we're supposed to be able to discern and judge who are the wolves. We're not supposed to just, you know, like go along and trust everybody and try to go along with what everybody's doing and right just for the sake of harmony and, and, you know, just like being nice and being kind. But there are wolves out there. And Jesus says he warns us, like, I'm sending you out like, like sheep among wolves. We have to be shrewd. We have to be discerning. That word, it actually means to discern, to set apart, to be able to separate what is one and what is the other. 1 Corinthians 2.15 tells us, The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Right? That word, I said, is, is discern. We're supposed to discern all things. We're supposed to have a discerning heart, a discerning spirit, and a discerning mind that's able to look at a situation, look at someone, look at like whatever it is, and say, hey, this is the situation. This is the way that God would see and discern. And we're supposed to make judgments according to what we see basically in the spirit. So I believe that what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7 is not about not judging, right? not being, not judging anybody, right? Don't judge me, but Jesus is talking about judging rightly, to judge correctly, to be able to discern. And he expands on this 
wha- with what he's talking about with this parable, right? He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not in notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So I, this is all I can find at home, right? This is from, like, my aquarium thing. But the image that Jesus is, is like, like showing us is like this, right? Like, I, I don't want to touch this. It's kind of gross on my eye. But imagine this sticking out of my eye, right? right? This is quite humorous, right? And I believe that this is just an example of Jesus using humor a lot of times to drive in a point. Because this is very ridiculous. This is like a plank. You know, you guys have heard, who knows the, the rock group, the Christian rock group, Plank Eye? You guys have never heard of Plank Eye? I, I guess I'm dating myself. But there was this Christian group called Plank Eye, and they used to sing, like, you know, rap songs and stuff like that. But this is the image that Jesus is talking about, literally having a, either a plank or a log. Right? The Greek word uh, it translates to either a log or, like, a plank, a big chunk of wood that is sticking out of our eyes. I believe he's being humorous here. Who knows that Jesus is very – he's a humorous guy. Jesus has an amazing sense of humor. We see it a lot in the stories that he tells, right? We, it doesn't sound funny when we read it, but back then, it was probably hilarious. Right? He t- like this is like an a example with a modern twist. Imagine it being spoken like with Dave Chappelle's voice or something. But he basically says, how many of you, when your kid asks you for a cheeseburger, would give him a Brillo cup, right? That, that, that's, like, that's kind of like what Jesus is saying. He's using these hyperbole to actually like, like get at people's hearts. He says, like, you know, like, like the whole thing about a camel going through the eye of a needle is like Shaq sitting in a smart car, you know. It's like ridiculous, right? That's basically what he's trying to get. When people heard this, they would be like, that's ridiculous, right? But he would use these humorous analogies to really drive in a point. Um, one, of the, one of the things when I read this and I really laughed was, remember that one part where Jesus is, they asked Jesus to pay the temple tax, right? And then Peter's like, oh, you know, you, you're the son of God, you know. And then he says, well, if I, I'm, I you know, like, I'm, I'm going to give on to Caesar what Caesar is. So he says, tell Peter, go down to the, the shore, throw in your line, and you're going to catch a fish. And when you catch a fish, you're going to take that fish, open his mouth, and there's going to be two coins inside, and you're going to use those coins to pay the temple tax. And I just imagine Peter, like, he listens to Jesus. So he's going out there, and he throws in his line, he catches a fish, he opens the fish's mouth, and there's, like, two coins inside. And I just imagine him looking at Jesus like, like, <laughs> what is going on? And I can, like, when I read this, Jesus is laughing. It's quite humorous, right? Like he could have just said, all right, here's two coins. Go pay the symbol. Or, like, oh, oh, like, these coins appeared in my pocket. But, like, he has Peter go out of his way to catch a fish. There's two coins in his mouth. And I just imagine Jesus, like, looking at him when he sees that coins and he looks over. He's like, he's like, ha, 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 you know? He's laughing at Peter, right? He had a sense of humor. And, and when you see this imagery of, like, this big thing in, in our eye, Jesus is using this hyperbole to really show how ridiculous some of the, the ways that people live and the, and, the, and the attitudes and the perceptions that we have, how laughable it is to the Lord, right? And here with the speck, of the, with the speck and the, the log, Jesus is using it to, in a quite funny way, to drive in this point about being judgy people, being judgmental people. And, and the point is not that we should never judge. That's, that's taking it out of context. 
but that we should judge rightly. And he tells us to first remove the log from our own eye before we remove the speck from the eye of our brother. Meaning, before we can actually help somebody, we must first work on ourselves. We have to work on our hearts. We have to remove all of the junk that causes us to not see people correctly. And, and, and I want to ask you, why did Jesus use this imagery of a log, this exaggerated log or a plank sticking out of our eyes? And I believe it's because, number one, we often do the opposite. We do the opposite. We always look at our own flaws as just that flaw. Uh, we just see it as small issues, mere flaws that make us us. Well, that's just the way that I am, you know. But we see the sins of other people uh, as huge issues that need to be dealt with. Like, we have bad perception. When we see somebody, like, you know, we see a Christian and they're, like, you know, sinning in this way, we see them and we're like, oh, like, you know, you know, like, we have this, like, this righteousness rises up, self-righteousness rises up, and we're like, oh, they're sinners, they need to repent. But we, we look at our own sins, and we see them as this mere speck, you know. We do this backwards. We judge ourselves based on our intentions, you know, like, I meant to do good. You don't know my intentions. My intentions were good. I just messed up a little bit, right? But then we judge others based on their actions. We look at what they did, like, look what sinners they are, and we, we judge even their motives. Like, oh, they did that because, you know, like, they're this and that without truly knowing what caused those actions to come about. It's like it's, it's always happened throughout history. You know, even from the beginning, Adam and Eve, when, when you know, God, God's out and they sin and they eat the fruit, right? God comes back. He's like, Adam, why did you do this, right? And then Adam, what does he do? What's the first thing that he does when God confronts him? He's like, the wife that you gave me, right, she made me do this, right? It's like, she's the bad one, right? She's the bad one. It's not me. It's her. She made me do this, right? It's, it's, it's happened throughout, throughout history. When we see David, right, mighty man of God. I love this story. David, he's a mighty man of God. He's a man after God's own heart. Well, Nathan the prophet comes to him and tells him this story. He's like, there's a rich man and there's a poor man. And the rich man has many livestock, like many sheep, many cattle. And then the poor man only has one iwi lamb. I don't know what an iwi lamb is, but it's just... Ewe lamb or just a little lamb. He just has a lamb. But he loved that lamb with all of his heart. You know, he, he ate at his table. She ate at his table. She drank from his cup. She even slept in the same, you know, she slept in the bed with him. And he cherished this little lamb. But when this, you know, foreigner came, this traveler came, the rich man didn't kill one of his many cattle or many, you know, his many sheep to feed this traveler. He, he took the, the, the only lamb of this poor man slaughtered it and fed it to this traveler. And then when David hears this, he's like, that man must die, right? It's like, as God is, the, you know, as God is God, he, like, that man must die. He's like, he has to pay him back, like, like fourfold, four, the price of four sheep for what he has. Is as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. That's what David says. And then Nathan tells him, that's you, man. <laughs> like, that's you. That's exactly who you are. And it was. Like, he he sleeps with Bathsheba. He sees Bathsheba bathing. He's like, oh, she's so fine. And then he has adultery with her. And then he tries to cover it up by, you know, getting Uriah, his, his, her uh, husband, to come back from the battle so that he, that he can, like, sleep with his wife. But then him being a righteous man doesn't go home, but he's, he sleeps at the gates with the other soldiers because, you know, he's like, how can, how can I go and be with my family when there's a war going on, right? 
so David literally does premeditated murder. He goes, you know, he sends Uriah to the front line. And when he's there, the, the, the more fearsome fighting is going on, pull back from him, retreat so that he's killed. And that's exactly what happens. And then, and then, and then and Nathan calls him out. He's like, you are this man. You are the man that took this little lamb away from this poor man and slaughtered it for yourself. And he was so quick to pass judgment on the man that killed this lamb that he failed to realize the log of adultery and the log of murder that's in the uh, that was going on. We are people, as people, we're so quick to pass judgment on other people. Right? But when it comes to us, we show grace. We show, you know, we show, we, we, we want people to see our intentions. We, you know, we're like, hey, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. My intentions were good. And we're really good at this. We've been doing it since we were little. Ethan, as he's about to turn six, and every time he does something bad, I'll say, why did you do this? And you know what he tells me? Almost every time, he says, Ezra told me to do it. And that's why I did it. It's his fault. So he's basically, six-year-old saying, hey, he's the bad one. He should be judged. He's the one that made me do this. I'm, a, I'm just an innocent bystander here, you know? He does this all the time, and I get so angry at him because I'm like, hey, you need to take responsibility for your actions, right? And so we've been teaching him that. But even at six, he passes judgment on his brother all the time. He's the bad one. And Jesus uses this almost ridiculous image of a log in our eye to point that out. Look at the log in your eye. Look at yourself first. Right? You have to learn, be able to look at yourself and, and be able to remove all of the things that's causing you to have bad perception about yourself, about other people, and about God before you're able to even try to remove the speck in your brother's eye. And I also believe that Jesus uses this metaphor of like a log in our eye because we can do more damage with the log in our eye right, than uh, our fellow brother with a speck in their eye. You guys have to understand. Have you ever gotten something in your eye before? I remember, I think I was riding me in a scooter or whatever. I was riding on the road, and I didn't, ha I didn't have my helmet. Well, probably a scooter because I wasn't wearing a helmet. And uh, this fly literally went in my eye, and then I could feel it crawling around inside my eye. Right? And, like, it's just one eye that's impaired, but literally I couldn't do anything. I was just like, oh! I could just feel this bug in my eye, and I literally had to pull over. And, like, I had to stop everything, I had to, and I had to, like, go inside and, like, try to get this bug out of my eye, right? You guys are like, hey, it happens a lot, right? I eat bugs sometimes, right? And I believe Jesus uses the eye as an example because it's so important for us to have the right perception, right? The right perception about ourselves. We have to have the right perception about God and our right perception about the people in our lives, the people that we're surrounded by. Or we could do a lot of damage. We can do a lot of damage if, our, if we have this log in our eye, our interactions with people, uh, our loved ones, even the, our interactions with the lost and, 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 the, pe and, the, and the ones that we want to even reach out to, we can actually do more damage like this than even just leaving it alone and allowing that speck to be in our eye. And Jesus tells us, work on yourself first. Take the plank out of your own eye before you remove the speck from your brother's eye so you can see clearly. Because as representatives, 
representatives of Christ, we have to see people the way he sees people. Um, Jesus sees people in a way that a lot of us, we don't see people that way. And I'm sorry, there's a whole lot of believers and Christians out there that see people not the way that Jesus sees people. So what, I- what does it look like for us to remove this plank from our eyes, right? What does it mean? I believe the most important point is to apply the gospel. We are all sinners who have been forgiven by grace. This is probably the most important step in removing this plank from our eyes, is we have to acknowledge the gospel in our lives. We have to constantly be applying the gospel into our lives. The gospel says that we are wretched sinners, that we have no way of saving ourselves, nothing that we can do to make us right before God. We are more sinful and wretched than we can possibly imagine. But the gospel also tells us that we are loved and accepted by God who sacrificed his son to redeem us and saved us from hell. We are more loved and accepted than we can possibly imagine. That's the paradox of the gospel, right? And when we truly understand the paradox of this gospel, this is, this is Tim Keller thought. Like this is the, the definition of, I'm going to have it later, but it's the way that Tim Keller explains the gospel to us is that when we have this understanding that we are, we are just like the worst sinners we're, we're like, like, no matter what we do, there's nothing that we can make us right before God. We're just wretched sinners. But at the same time, we're loved and we're cherished and we're so accepted by God. It's in that paradox that we're able to find the humility to be able to see ourselves rightly, right? And it's the gospel that humbles us and helps us to see God clearly and, and to see ourselves clearly. It's only when we understand grace that we can be gracious to the ones around us. If we, if we don't understand grace, if we don't understand what it is to be forgiven, we're never going to be able to forgive. We're never going to be able to see people from that heart of grace that Jesus sees people. Now, this isn't something that we do once and we're done. Because this is what creates prideful Christians, I think. Right? They, feel like they believe, like, oh, yeah, I'm done with the gospel, right? The gospel was there. I'm done. I, I got saved when I was like in high school. I got saved when I was in elementary school. I understand the gospel. That's good. And now I'm going to move on to like other things. Right? And this is what creates hypocritical Christians. Right? People that think that they have it all together is because they are not applying the gospel to their lives. Right? The gospel that says that, hey, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And the only reason that I even, can even say that I'm righteous is because of the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness of Christ. We have to continually be every day applying the gospel to our lives. And it has to continually be realized in our hearts. The gospel has to be everything. It's supposed to be applied in our lives in the decisions that we make, in the way that we have conversations with people, the way that we deal with our family, in the way that we see our friends, in the way that we see the people that treat us like crap at work, in the way that we see the, you know, like the, the news and the way that we see, you know, the poor people and rich people and the way that we see all of the things that we perceive every day in our lives must be seen through the eyes of the gospel. We have to apply the gospel in us constantly. Because that's, that's where it starts to transform our lives. That's where we're able to walk out the gospel in our lives every day. It's a realization that we're, this is Tim Keller's definition. Tim, did I say Kim Keller? Tim Keller's definition. It says, we are 
we, uh, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. That's the gospel. It's only when that is realized in our hearts that we're able to have the right perception and the right understanding when we look at people and we view people. But we forget this. We put it on the back burner. The gospel was yesterday. And when we do this, it affects the way that we see each other. It affects the way that we see people that are walking in sin. It affects the way that we see you know, fellow brothers and sisters. And it affects the way that we see the lost. And then that's where this judgment and this judginess starts to rise up in us from the pride that comes from thinking that, hey, I'm righteous because of all of the things that I do. I'm righteous because, you know, I go to church every Sunday. I'm righteous because I pray every week. I'm righteous because I read the Bible. I memorize this many Bible verses. And all of a sudden, when we start to walk this way, when we look at other people, all of a sudden, they don't measure up, and we start to judge them. And it makes us feel important, makes us feel better about ourselves. But, we, but Jesus says, remove the law from your eyes. And one way we do this is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. When the gospel comes alive in your heart, that Jesus God, I'm such a sinner. You're able to see right through that. And next, we have to confess and repent of our sins. The gospel leads us to true repentance. Repentance isn't feeling sorry for our sins. Right? That's not repentance. Right? Whenever we talk with our kids and then we say, hey, you know, like, like they feel sorry. But then repentance isn't feeling sorry. That, you know, that's just behavior modification, feeling sorry. Well, true repentance is when we do something about it. We turn. If we have sin in our lives, it will hinder us from seeing God and others clearly. We have to confess and repent of our sins in our lives. Not just the visible sins that we struggle with or we may be struggling with, but also the sins that are not very visible, especially the sin of pride. Pride is a very deceptive sin. It's one of those sins that I, I believe that it's very hard for us to diagnose in us. Because you know what? We judge judgy people. Who's done that before? Right? Oh, that guy is so judgmental. Oh, he doesn't have Christ in his heart. You know what I mean? Are we so like, I'm like, what? That's pride right there, right? It's like, it's like we judge. I, there's many times I've been judgy about judgy people, right? And so like we have to, we have to understand this pride is very deceptive. It's one of the first sins, and it's it's one of the sins that will continue to plague us because it doesn't feel doesn't look like like you know adultery or theft or or you know going out and you know hurting somebody. It's 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 just like kind of like woven into the fabric of our heart sometimes. So we have to repent of this pride, and it's a source of so many different kinds of sins in our lives. And the and and this in the in the the log that he's talking about, I believe that Jesus was aiming at the sin of pride. The sin that the Pharisees were guilty of is pride. The bad kind of judgment that Jesus is trying to keep us from falling into comes from this pride. Luke 18, it says, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This is this Pharisee is... You can see just the, the pride is dripping off of his lips. 
And he thought that he was right with God, but his pride kept him from realizing how wretched and how sinful he was. And pride caused him to pass judgment on this tax collector. But Jesus says, here, judge not, when he says judge not, that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured. Jesus says that this tax collector, uh, who is actually just humble, and he couldn't even look up, and he just looked down, and he just beat in his chest, and he's like, oh, have mercy on me. This c- tax collector was humble before the Lord, went to his house justified. He's a Pharisee, you know. Removing that log from our eyes in- involves confessing and repenting the sins in our lives, the sin of pride, the sin of, uh, you know, so many things that come from pride affects the way that we see people and the way that we perceive God and ourselves. And so we have to repent. We have to turn from that. You know, we have to ask God, God, give me a new identity. God, let, like, like, allow the power of your gospel to come alive in me. Help me to realize your gospel every day. And so we move and we confess and repent of our sins. Next, we apply the rule of love. This is very important. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that we can do all these amazing things. We can speak in tongues. We can prophesy. We can like sell all that we have and give it to the poor. We can have faith that can move mountains. But if we don't have love, we're nothing. That's what, that's what the Bible says. We have to understand that the standard of God is love because God is love. Whatever we do for the kingdom, whatever we do for God, and whatever we do for the people around us has to come from a place of love. If we are not walking in love, our spirituality is actually tainted because God is love, right? And we are found misrepresenting God when we are not walking in love. See, we we misrepresent God when we're talking about him, but we don't do it from a place of love. Jesus came to earth to preach his message of repentance and the kingdom, but he was always walking in love. Even when he rebuked the Pharisees, he was walking in love. You know, like a lot of people, we think that when we go to like, you know, sinners or, you know, people out there that are like, you know, that don't know Jesus, and we talk to them about like the kingdom, we talk to them about Jesus, and we talk to them about hell, people think that that they're going to hate Jesus. They're going to they're gonna reject them. But you have to understand, Jesus taught on all these things. Right? Jesus taught on the kingdom. He taught about repentance. He taught about hell, about the, the lake of fire and the gnashing of teeth, right? But he always did it from a place of love. And who are the ones that followed them by the thousands, right? There's thousands of people that would follow Jesus. And they followed him not because so much of the things that he said, because they experienced the love that he had. Like, they sensed his love. When he was speaking to them, he, they sensed the love that he had for them. And they were like, oh, like, the, the, what, like this guy, what he's speaking to is touching the, the, the center of my heart. Because it, they can feel the, the presence of the love that he had. They sensed the love that he had for them. Jesus loved the world. It says, for God so loved the world. Jesus, for the joy that was set, he loved the people that he came to save. And we have to represent him well by walking in love. We have to come from a place of love. And we're able to walk in love. And, we, and when we are people that keep our eyes and our hearts set, set, set on Jesus and on what he's done for us and, and how his love and how his gospel transforms our hearts, right? 
So we have to walk in love. It's the rule of love. If you want to remove this plank, one thing that we have to do is start to walk in love. We have to start to apply the rule of love in our lives. We have to ask the question, hey, am I doing this because I love this person or am I doing this because I just want to be right? right? I ask that question all the time. We, when I have a fight with Mina, right, I'll be like, I'm right. I say, I've said this in my sermons many times. I am 100% correct in this. But at the end of the day, what Jesus will ask me, like, hey, do you want to be right or do you want to be loving? Do you want to be led in love? Do you want to love your wife or do you want to be right before your wife? Right? So we, we, we have to be walking in love. This is something that we, we have to be if we're going to represent Christ right in this world. And, and then the fourth one is we stand on grace and truth. John 1.17. This is a very important verse for me where it says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, he came with grace and truth. He loved. He was all mercy. He was all about mercy. He was all about grace. But he stood on the truth of God. Right? And as people of God, we have to walk in grace and love, but we also have to stand on the truth of God. We can't allow grace and love to kind of undermine the truth of God. The truth of God stands against all opposition, right? If, we, if we're standing on the truth of God, right, nothing can, you know, come against us. But at the same time, we still have to be loving and graceful, right? This is, this is the balance that Jesus came and he encountered us with. He encountered us with grace and he encountered us with truth. So we can't just stand on grace. That's how we get believers that abuse grace, abuse mercy. Oh, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. But they just live a life that's just completely against any kind of commandments that Jesus gave us. And then we have people that walk around throwing truth at people with no love, with no grace. This is the truth of God. Eat it. You know, like they're just shoving it in people's faces. And we see none of the grace that Jesus came and walked with. Truth of God is not just knowledge, right? We have to fully understand the grace that Jesus gives us is a free gift, but we also have to under understand that when Jesus came and he sh showed us grace, he said, hey, live like me, walk like me, be like me, right? So the truth of God is not just knowledge, but it's something that is lived out in our lives. It's one thing for people to tell others about what's bad and wrong, about the truth of God, and it's another thing when they're actually living it out in their lives. Because when they're truly living it out, right, and they're experiencing the fullness of the grace that God has for them, it radically changes the message. And this is something I, I heard Max Lucado say. He says, Jesus shared grace truthfully, and he shared truth gracefully. Jesus showed the disciples grace by washing their feet but then truth, when they told them, now go and do as I do. I'm going to show you grace. I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to humble myself and wash your feet. And then he taught them grace by saying, now you go and you do likewise also. Grace told us, told the adulterous woman uh, that I do not condemn you. But then truth tells them, go and sin no more. Grace invites the woman at the well to drink from living water. Truth reminded her that she had five husbands, and the one that she was with was not her husband. Through grace, God accepts us, but truth says that he doesn't accept our sinful behavior. We as people of God must be people of grace and truth. It has to come together. 
And one way we can remove this log from our eyes is we allow grace and truth to guide our perspective. When we're experiencing grace and walking in truth is when we're able to have the clarity to see people the way that Christ saw them. Jesus never used truth without grace, and he never gave truth, gave grace without truth. So when we're able to understand both God's grace and his truth, that, that, that both become powerful. When, when we are truly able to understand grace and truth, grace becomes powerful, and the truth of God becomes powerful. When we're sticking with just one, and we're just giving grace away, that grace is not powerful enough. It's not really grace. And when we're just throwing truth at people's face, and thinking, see, this is the way that you're supposed to live, right? If you don't live this way, you're going to go to hell, right? When we're just doing that, that truth stops being powerful. But it's only when it comes with grace and truth that they both become powerful. Brothers and sisters, many times we walk around with logs in our eyes, you know, just sticking out of our eyes, and it causes us to not see correctly because for us, you know, we have to look at people the way that Christ sees people. It's very important. When Jesus came, he came to save the lost. He came because he loved the world, right? For God so loved the world. And in order for us to be his instruments, to be his hands and feet, we also have to have the same perception that Christ has when he sees a lost person, when he sees somebody that's struggling, when he sees somebody that's, that's backsliding, when he sees somebody that's walking down a path to sin and destruction. We have to have the same kind of perception that Christ has. And it's not just grace, it's not just truth, but it's grace and truth. We have to be firm in both. Now, how do we remove the speck from our brother's eye? You know, there's this, you know, the speck like that fly that's stuck in my eye. Like, how do we remove, how are we supposed to remove the speck? Because we're supposed to. Jesus says, right, when you get right, when you remove this from your eye, you're, now you can go. You have the clarity to now actually remove the speck from your brother's eye. But let's start with what not to do. Right, we don't f fault find. You know. We don't point out other people's faults out of pride, to make ourselves feel better, to show and point out our goodness and righteousness compared to how bad they are. That's what the Pharisees did, and that's not what Jesus is talking about. We should not judge that way. When Jesus says, judge not, that's what he's talking about. When we look at people and say, hey, look how horrible they live their lives. I'm so much better than them. I do this and that and that. God loves me so much more. Right? You know, that's not the judgment that God is Jesus is talking about. When he says, don't judge, that's the judgment that he's, he means, like cynicism. Like this kind of judging leads to gossip, it leads to slander, it leads to cynicism, it leads, in the end, to us not being loving, not being gracious, and not being Christ-like. But we, that's not the way, what we're supposed to do. When Jesus says, judge not, that's what he's meaning, do not do. But what does it mean to remove the speck from somebody's eye? Right? Uh, Amanda has a piece of whatever in her eye. How am I supposed to remove that speck from your eye? And I, I believe that speck thing, we can see it in Galatians 6, 1 through 5. So I want to read it to you guys. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgressions, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you, you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. 
says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgressions, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. It's clear that the Bible tells us to discern and judge people around us, right? So when Jesus says judge not, it doesn't mean that we're not supposed to judge anybody. It just means that we're supposed to, to allow people to, it doesn't mean that we're supposed to allow people to just walk down a path of like sin and death, you know, including Christians and non-Christians. And we're not supposed to just let them just live their lives because, you know, they're responsible for their own thing. That's not what it means, right? We're supposed to s- remove the speck. We're supposed to make certain judgments. We're supposed to, when, see, when we see loved ones or people that are around us, out of the love that we have for God and for them, we're supposed to, to help them to truth and righteousness. That's why we have to remove the log from our eyes. And so then when we have clarity, we remove the speck from the eyes of our brother. But we are supposed to re- be speck removers. We're supposed to go and remove things from people's eyes. And we can help to remove the speck from the, our, our eyes. And, and when we realize and we understand that it's a sensitive issue. Jesus uses the eye because I believe everybody, even back there, knew when something went in your eye, it hurt. I, I'm sure that happened all the time. There'd be like dust storms and winter. I mean, they're like, ah, oh, my eye, right? So he chooses one of the most sensitive parts of the human body, right, that we're, that we're able to touch another, somebody else, right? So, he, like, what is the one very sensitive part of our body that we can actually go and help is the eye, right? And when something goes in our eye, it's agony, right? And we're, we can actually... They can't remove it for themselves sometimes, so then you need somebody to help them. So this is perfect analogy of us going and helping to remove something from their eye. But you have to understand, eye is the eyes are very delicate. We're not supposed to just go and just stick our dirty fingers in there. Like, I think I got it. I think I got it. Right? A lot of times we go there and we try to remove something from their left eye, right? And then, but we have this log in our eye. And so instead of removing the speck from their left eye, we just jack up their right eye. Now they can't see at all, right? That's why Jesus says, remove the, remove, get right, right? Get your heart right. Get your heart right so that your action, your heart emulates my heart. That your Holy Spirit is helping you to, to, to really walk in the way that I want you to walk. And then you're able to go and remove the speck from the eyes of your brother. Right judgment is not something that we throw at people. Just go daily and just, ah, you got something in your eye. And I just rub my dirty fingers in your eye. And it's something that we need to do gently. Jesus never threw hell at people. He never told somebody that they're going to go to hell. He preaches on hell, but it always comes from a place of grace. It comes from a place of love, from a place of mercy. And it says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgressions, you who are spiritual should restore him to a spirit of gentleness, with a spirit of gentleness. It's it's better that we remain silent than try to do eye surgery with a log sticking out of our eye to do more damage. And then Paul says, in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness is the fruit of the spirit, right? And all of this points to the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit, and we need to depend on the Holy Spirit because we can't remove the log from our eyes without the Holy Spirit. And we can't be led to help somebody Remove the speck from their eyes without the Holy Spirit. We have to have the gentleness, the love, the peace for us to remove specks from our brother's eyes has to come from the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is a surgeon. 
And the word of God is his instrument. It's his scalpel. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of the spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Holy Spirit gives us the right perspective. When we're able to actually take this log out of our eyes and we're being led by the Spirit of God, we're going to be led to be able to see and perceive the specks in people's eyes the way that God wants us to. And I love what Paul says in this Galatians passage. He says, brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. I love that word restore. Is this, not, is this your heart when you're talking to somebody? Is your, your goal to restore them or is it to condemn them? Because we need to gauge our hearts. We need to make sure that our hearts are right. And when a lot of times when I, when I talk about people and then I, I do a gut check or I do a heart check, I'm like, oh, it's not to restore them. It's to make myself feel better, right? To make, to make myself feel like, oh, I'm not that bad. But Jesus came to restore us, not to condemn us. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But he came so that we could be restored back to our relationship with God. He saw the wicked and the wretched state of our hearts, but he didn't condemn. He came to restore. Is that the intention of your heart when you judge or discern the people in your eyes? Because us removing specks from people's eyes, the goal needs to be to restore. Our heart has to be to restore, genuinely restore them to a, to a place where they're able to face Jesus, face God, and then and realize the love of God, that love that the way that God truly loves them. It, us trying to remove and judge and help them and discern whatever that we're discerning about them has to be to restore them to a place of them seeing God. That means we have to represent God well. We can't be just be like, dude, you're a sinner. Yes, so are you, <laughs> you know. Dude, you, what you're doing is wrong. It's what you're doing is wrong, right? That's what Jesus, the heart of this is, is for us to make sure that our hearts are right. It's not to not judge, to just let people go to hell, let people just allow to do whatever they want. But when we do, we have to do it with the heart of Christ and to genuinely restore them to a place of, of love and connection with God. I want to close with this. If we are to judge rightly, if we are going to remove the specks from our the people's eyes around us, because Jesus tells us to do this, right? If we're going to do this right, we need to start from a place of prayer. Right? I believe Psalm 139, 23 to 24, like represents the type of prayer that we need to have. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. We have to be praying this in our hearts. Before we go up and say anything to anybody, we need to pray this prayer in our heart. God, search my heart. If there's anything that's like funky in me, help me to just keep my mouth shut, right? But this, this really is, has to be a prayer that we pray. Right? If we're going to do right, if we're going to do ministry, if we're going to, to, ex- to expand the kingdom of God and, and do what Jesus has commanded us to do. This is the prayer that we need to constantly be praying. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Right? Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous 
grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This has to be our prayer. And we pray for them. Even before we say a thing to them, we start in the spirit realm of prayer. Paul says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Our spirituality isn't something that comes from all of the things that we do in public. Our spirituality comes from the the things that we do in secret. Our spirituality comes from the things that we do when no one else is looking and we pray. And we seek God and we pray on behalf of the people in our lives. When we go to the prayer closet and we pray for the brother that's backsliding or the sister that's walking in sin or the family member that's, that's, that's messing up, the coworker that doesn't know Jesus, right? When we go into the prayer closet to actually start to really pray for them with genuine prayer, that's where we're starting the, 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 the process of us like being able to seek them correctly. Because you have to be led by the Spirit, Holy Spirit, to genuinely pray for them. Like you can't be led by the Spirit to like look at somebody and say, "Man, I'm gonna pray for you," because you know, because I know that you know God can you know, change the situation. Like, if you can't genuinely, you know, like keep your mouth shut and just pray for them, like in your prayer closet, you still have a log in your life. You know that? You know that that, that if you can't look at somebody and say, "Hey," right? Like even before saying anything, you say, oh, "Okay, I'm gonna pray for this person first. I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask God to 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 come and Holy Spirit to come and radically change this situation. If you can't genuinely pray for them first, you you're walk you're trying to do whatever you're doing. You're trying to do it with a log in your hand. But it's from that place of prayer when we humble ourselves and we go like God, like I know my brother, you know, like he's walking down this path. My sister is walking down this path. My, this person doesn't know you, and and you take your time and energy and for you for you to genuinely pray for them, right? God's going to start to slowly change the perception that you have for them. God's going to start to give you a heart that starts to burn for them. Right? You know that? You know that, that, that whatever, like, transformation that God wants in somebody's life, it starts, as you start to pray for them, how God changes that is God starts to light a fire in your heart for them. And when that start, when that fire starts to burn, and when that fire starts, right, is when Holy Spirit's going to start to lead you and guide you. Like, hey, I want you to go. I want you to, I want you to tell them something. And that's when you're being led by the Holy Spirit. I've had people come to me, tell me something, and it freaked me out. Brady used to do this. We had this Brady. He was like a, I don't know, some crazy guy, tall blonde guy, like an alien. But he used to be very prophetic, and he used to, I know, he's a very spiritual man, and he prays a lot. He would come to me, and he never judged me. Like, he never would judge me. He would come to me, and he'd be like, God wanted me to tell you something. And he'd be like, he loves you, and, and then whatever it is. And then, like, I don't know. He didn't even tell the whatever rebuke or whatever, but I would have this conviction in my heart, you know. There are times where I'd be like, oh, and I would go home, and I'd be like, oh, I need to confess something, right? I need to, and like, like, and and I knew that he never he, he never judged you, but he always was able to, to come from a place of, like, like, where Holy Spirit is guiding and leading you. You remember Brady, right? When we are able to genuinely pray for people from a place of just humbleness and we, we pray and we love them and we're looking at them from the, pr- the way that Jesus looks at them and we, we're able to walk in this way, God's going to start to give us words 
And, like, he's going to give us direction, and he's going to give us spiritual inklings. He's going to give prophetic inklings where we're going to be able to say, hey, this I, I believe that God is leading me for me to say this and, and tell you in this way. And I'm telling you, people will be transformed. They will be able to hear the voice of God because you're coming from the heart of God. But they will never be able to hear it if you're coming from a place of just self-righteousness and pride and law. They need to know. <laughs> I've said this many times. Oh, they just need to know. I just got to throw this and shove this in their mouth so that they know and they understand that they are wrong, right? No one's going to be able to turn to God in that way. They're going to start to look at God, the God that we worship, and be like, dude, that guy, God doesn't seem that cool. This Jesus guy seems like very hypocritical. This Jesus seems like he's like a, he's a Debbie Downer, right? This Jesus doesn't seem fun at all. You know what? Jesus is fun. He's amazing. And we have to represent him well. And the way that we're going to do it is if we start to really go in and do some surgery on ourselves. Not on ourselves. We have to allow Holy Spirit to come and do surgery on us. And Holy Spirit comes alive and he comes and he starts to remove this log from our eyes. We're going to be able to walk the way that Jesus wants us to walk. And we're going to have the heart that Jesus wants us to have for the world and for the people around us. Let's all stand up and let's pray.